2: My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children, and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue, or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime, from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this my own podcast. I still pinch myself, but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime.
1: And being a a UC involves you becoming the person that you are portraying, but stopping just that little bit before you actually turn into them.
2: What sort of man has the honour of not just one Valor Award, but two? What sort of a man risks his own life, day after day, masquerading as a bearded, dope-smoking, binge-drinking druggie, dressed in moccasins, a flannelette shirt and baggy oversized tracky decks, infiltrating major drug syndicates with crooks who wouldn't think twice about killing you if ever they found out who you really were? The crooks were drug dealers whose greed for money kills our kids, our friends, our family members, and ruins the lives of so many more. What sort of a man does a warrant on a drug dealer's house where it goes horribly, tragically wrong, with shots being fired between police and the dealer? One of those shots was from this man's gun, our guest today, which killed the dealer. However, one of the shots fired by the dealer hit a colleague and a great mate who died in our guest's arms, That man, our guest today, is Keith Banks, an undercover cop with Queensland Police for many years, who's now taking it a bit easier in the corporate world and has become an author. His first book is worth reading, trust me, Drugs, Guns and Lies. Today, we'll talk about his undercover work, but there's so much more to Keith than being a UC, which you'll hear about in a future session, but today... Let's go undercover with Keith Banks. Now there is an introduction, Mr Banks.
1: Took the words right out of my mouth. And how can you follow that?
2: So I thought we might uh, today give listeners a brief rundown. Can you tell us a bit about um, joining Queensland Police and why UC Work interested you?
1: Okay. Um, yeah, I, I uh, probably two main reasons, Norrell, As you've said, I, I joined when I was 17, or the year I turned 17, actually. Um, I couldn't stay in a home life anymore, um, and, and you've touched on that, and, uh, and it was quite, uh, quite a difficult upbringing. So I needed to escape, is, is the best way to term it. I, uh, I had had my sights set on the Australian Defence Force. Um, I was uh, actively looking at Duntroon, as it was called in those days, for officer training. Um, but a, a police recruiter actually came to school one day and uh, and I'd always wanted to do something to help people. I'd always wanted to do something to protect people from bullies, predominantly because of the upbringing that I'd had and I was one of those who were bullied uh, both at home and at school and, uh, and I wanted to do something that really would make a mark and a difference. So policing uh, was something I looked at. It was a cadet system, so I was able to uh, leave school go to Brisbane, do year 12 at the academy. Um, very similar system, I believe, that Vic Pole had at the time. Um, another 12 months of training and then wait till I turn 19 to be sworn. Um, so I went through that, uh, went to the academy, loved it, loved the fact that I had my own room, loved the fact that I was paid, loved the fact that I was able to listen to uh, to rock and roll music because part of the thing at home was that my parents were both country and western fans, and no other music was tolerated so um <laughs> so there were a number of uh, areas that appealed to me and um, and i uh, I loved it. I loved being a cop i uh, I worked in uniform for three years i I walked the beat I did the the rites of passage and uh, and then I was um, able to be transferred to what we called uh, Brisbane mobile patrols a model of policing that I've not seen anywhere else in the country. Um, It was a station that we had, I think we had about 300 or so police working out of there. Um, You had a permanent partner, permanent patrol area, um, permanent crews, and it was based on the Los Angeles police model. Um, Ray Witchrod had been the police commissioner before Lewis and uh, Witchrod was Wittrod was a, a reformist police commissioner, and this was a brilliant concept he put into place. And to go to mobiles, it was almost, not almost, it actually was a stepping stone to becoming a detective. The only arrests that we handed over to the CIB were um, murder and, um, and rape. We, as uniformed cops, did everything else, um, which was, again, very, very unusual. It was a, a great place to work. You know, it was the exciting sharp end of policing. And uh and and we still we you know, being my my former colleagues, as I'm I'm still heavily networked in the job in Queensland, we often joke about the fact that those of us who worked at mobiles, we we just didn't take any leave. We were worried that we might miss out on something.
2: Oh yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> and so why did you what interested you with a, as a UC? When did that all happen?
1: Well, I was actually on patrol. I didn't know UCs existed, and probably, you know, a good thing that you didn't know much about undercovers. Um, and I, I was really learning about the various areas of of uh, the police force and what was available. And I always wanted to do the sharp end. I always wanted to do stuff that was, you know, adrenaline-inducing and dangerous, and yep. and being <laughs> a real cop. Yep. Yeah, because I wanted to be a super cop. You know, I wanted to be the best. <laughs> hey, Keith, um, you The were. best available. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um and uh, and we're in the city one night, um shots fired call, and as you know, Norel, shots fired every cop within, you know, the near vicinity will uh and far vicinity will race to a job like that. So we raced into uh the city and we got there. There were two cars that um had obviously collided. There were a couple of uh grubs handcuffed on the ground, there were a couple of other grubby looking people milling around the place. And uh, and they quickly declared themselves as Drug Squad. And I went, okay, this is interesting. And uh, one of them came over to us and said, look, we need you to take our undercover back to, uh, back to CIB headquarters. Make it look good. Throw him in the back and, uh, and we'll see you back there. And I turned my my, uh, my off-sider and said, undercovers? What the hell are they? <laughs> and so, uh, in essence, um, that was the first time I realised we had UCs. And I put this guy in the back of the car and uh, and he had the, you know, the classic street level dealer, the long hair, the the t shirt, the torn jeans, you know, the the grubby sand shoes or whatever, the eighties earring. Yeah. Um, and as we're driving back, he turned to me after a, about thirty seconds or so and said, "G'day, Banksy, how are you?" And I went, <laughs> "What?" The? And it was a uh, it was a guy who was about a year below me in the academy. Oh. And. I remember looking at that thinking, oh, man, I've got to get into this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that was it, really. It was, you know, it, get, it was the exciting stuff, Narelle. It was, um, yeah. you know, I'd read the story of Frank Serpico in New York City Police Department, who was an undercover narcotics guy back in the very early 70s, I think, who, um, who, who was shot uh, during a, a raid in Brooklyn. And, uh, and he was an anti-corruption campaigner and, and an incredibly impressive man. And um, and he – I remember reading about him as, a God, I don't know, a 15-year-old and the fact that he reveled in not looking like a cop and never, ever being taken for a cop. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be one of them.
2: And so um, what – apart from drugs, what other offences are UCs
1: used for? Um, It depends. We we were predominantly used for drug investigation and setting up deals um, and and literally buying drugs in in that underworld. Um, Other UCs variously have been used as hitmen. So if someone takes out a a, a murder contract on somebody, a UC will pretend to be the the murderer or the hitman. They've been used in undercover pedophile stings. In in fact, um, I was used on a... (laughs) A particular job that I haven't written about in the book, because as as I've said to a number of people, I've wrote about every job I did. You'd probably need ten books. Um, but I was I was called in one night to uh, it still sickens me to think about it to uh, pretend to be a, an interested paedophile um, to entrap an older paedophile in Brisbane in, um, into making certain admissions, which he did. But part of that job that night was to sit with him and go through photographs of young boys in various stages of sexual assault and pretend to be turned on by it. It's just sickening. Um, so the, the the use of an undercover varies substantially. You know, they um, some undercovers will never make drug buys or uh, be involved in that. They are simply put into positions to gather intelligence and information. Um, and it's it's really um anything across the board i guess one of the best jobs i've read of and uh, and heard of in the last few years was the undercover investigation into the murder of daniel morcom in brisbane you know that's that's publicly declared so i'm not giving anything away um those undercover people did a sensational job they pretended they were part of a large criminal syndicate um they befriended the suspect. They portrayed themselves as ruthless, um, almost mafia-like figures. And he was interested in joining them. and, uh, And their conversation with him was, okay, no, we'd love to have you in. You know, we want to make a lot of money. We want to get you in on that. But we need to know if you're under any police attention, and we need to just make sure that we can understand the risk. And as a result, he confessed to them that he'd murdered Daniel. Brilliant job. And
2: so, what sort of personality traits um,
1: are required to be a UC? Oh, gee, I, I I really think you'd
2: have to be able to talk underwater, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah, I've learnt that, as you know. You've done very (laughs) well. I don't, I don't mind having a chat. (laughs) (laughs) I think, um, uh, I think one of one of the traits I had to overcome pretty quickly was shyness. I I was a shy young guy, Um, and and you know, even now, I. I can go out on a night, well, when we're allowed to, when restrictions ease again. Um, I'll go out with a work colleague and, uh, and he gets, uh, he just looks at me and goes, Jesus, you go out for a one beer, you come back with 20 new friends. So <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, I will work a room very well, you know, um, because I'm genuinely interested in people and, and I genuinely um, like to get to know people. As a UC, you have to be innovative. You have to be able to think quickly on your feet. You need to have a great memory because if you're going to be a liar, you need to have a great memory. And and being a, a UC involves you becoming the person that you are portraying, but stopping just that little bit before you actually turn into them. So if you're portraying a drug dealer, um, it was vital that I knew. So, so I bought a lot of heroin. When I learned my trade, um I had to know the prices, the profit margin, how many times I'd uh, cut it, or that means how many how many times or what quantity of additives I would add to say, an ounce of heroin, which might be about sixty percent pure, what additives I would put in it and how much money I intended to make, um, because good drug dealers will want to know that, and they'll they'll intuitively, realize you're not the real deal be- unless you're talking business because if you're in any business, you need to understand your profit margins and your distribution channel. So you, you need to, for me, it was always keeping in the back of my mind who I was as a person, as a cop, uh, with my moral compass, but then having the f- to give myself permission to be an absolute bastard. And to be, you know, a an identity that went completely against who I was as a person. But I developed a um, what I call an air of quiet menace when, and, and I got that from Pete, the first person I worked with. So all of that stuff. My my friend Larry, who I loved dearly, who passed away um, four years ago, who was an undercover colleague. Larry called it like going through Nida on steroids. So and in NIDA, you graduate as an actor. If you don't do a good job, you get a bad review. Oh, that's, sharp, that's tough. As an undercover, <laughs> if you do a bad job, you get a baseball bat around the head. So <laughs> the incentive is to actually do your role pretty well. Um, so to answer your question about whether I got confused, I, I, um, I did. I, I was challenged by a few things because I actually met people in that world who were drug dealers, but they were, they weren't bad people. So, you know, I I found myself becoming quite friendly with some of the targets I worked on. People that shared, you know, personality traits with me, but people who had a great sense of humor, people who were actually fun to be around. But for me, the challenge was then to remember that they were dealing in a product that was killing people. So as a human being, you know, one of, the, one of the things that we do as humans is we connect with other humans, where we are a, a, a gregarious species. And in that, the challenge for me, whilst it was dangerous work and, and some UCs were badly hurt, thankfully I wasn't. Um, I was flogged by a couple of coppers, but that's another story. <laughs> um, but for me, the, the fact that I was going into a role with the intention of betraying people that I was befriending, that was that was really challenging for me, and and every every without exception undercover I've spoken to since those di- those days, they've all said the same thing. Friend of mine did, well a couple of friends of mine did cross the line. Um, Harry, who was who's actually for anyone who reads my book, um, Harry has given me permission to use his real name. Um I have changed a number of names as I've said in the in the introduction or um, yeah the introduction part of the book. names have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty um, but harry harry was was more than happy for me to use his name. his story is tragic he um he joined undercover I think he was about twenty one as well um, he was a practicing devout muslim um, within twelve months he was not only drinking, um, he was injecting heroin, and he developed an addiction to heroin, and he started using that because he was in a situation in a job in Cairns, North Queensland, um, where he was forced to inject, um, and, and very quickly became an addict. We didn't know it at the time. Um, I knew that when he came back from that job, something wasn't quite right, but he, he um, disguised his addiction very, very successfully from us. And when I say us, I mean the other undercovers. Um, but he uh, he went on to continually use. He, he was um, he was provided with that heroin by some corrupt detectives in the drug squad. I'm absolutely certain of that because it suited their purposes to have an addict in, in the undercover scene. He um, went back to uniform. Uh, he was given a crap job in uniform, which was called orderly. You remember that? That's a pretty oh, junior job. Yep, yep, So yep. going to court and just making sure that, you know, the doors are closed in a, in a, in a courtroom. He, um, he ended up leaving with no, no rehabilitation, no counselling, no support. He was quietly paid out, medically unfit, um, and then it was basically you're on your own. He put all of that money up, bought a Harley, put the rest of the money up his arm, and uh, the only way he could get money to feed his addiction was to do armed robberies. He, um, he did a number of stick-ups for armed robberies in Brisbane and then went to Adelaide, did more down there. Um, he was arrested, sentenced to three years in Yatla Prison in Adelaide and then extradited after that to come back to Brisbane. And I think he did six or seven years in jail in Brisbane. Um, tragic just a, a direct result of his undercover work without any it still makes me angry all these years later that those in the queensland police force who who fed his addiction um were never held to account and he um he was released from jail and we lost contact um you know, sometimes I, I sit and, and I've said this to him because I've reconnected with him. Um oh, that's nice. Yeah. But I've said I, I feel guilt because I actually didn't try to find him earlier. Um you know, and and when when Larry uh when Larry who died of blood cancer and, and, and it's really important I guess to try and explain how close we all were, undercovers were we were our own little tribe because we were almost ostracized from normal policing and we actually didn't want to be like normal cops anyway because we were doing things that no one else understood um and were we're not really appreciated at all um well that's wrong we're not appreciated by most police um you know the, the level of work and danger and emotional trauma that we did and so when larry was uh, when larry passed away i um I called in a couple of favours and uh and found Harry's phone number or I was given Harry's phone number and uh and reconnected with him and he is now um he's a very happy, happily um Aww. married yeah. guy, still lives in Queensland, worked in the health department um for quite some time, counselling drug addicts, which is which is great. Um and he's just you know, he's he's pretty much at peace. Um although he still has his His demons, of course, and he has guilt and remorse, and um, you know all all of that um, consequence. But he was when I when I um, contacted him and brought him back to Harry's for for Larry's funeral, and then um, a couple of years later became apparent my book would be published. um, He absolutely gave me his blessing, and uh, and I think that's fabulous. Oh, so.
2: It, and that, again, too, Keith, that shows that you can come back from, um, you know, the depths of despair. You can find happiness again and you can make uh, good, can't you? It's um, it's like yeah. you would think when you are robbing yep. banks, you don't get much lower than that really, um, but it's um, lovely that he's been able to find um, peace, but... It, as you said, that makes my blood boil to think that the reason that happened was because of the police, the Queensland police.
1: Absolutely right, yeah, yeah. And uh, and, and I am very proud to call him a friend. I'm very proud of the man he's become. Um, and, and you're right, it's, it's taught me that anybody is capable of turning their life around if they're given the opportunity. Um, Whereas, you know, the young young cop that I was before I went into that world of undercover would never have believed it. You know, I I regarded everything as black and white. You're either good or you're bad. Um, But, you know, life life obviously shows us that's not always the case.
2: There's a lot of grey in there, isn't there? There sure is. Now, Keith, I thought thought a case study uh, would be a great way for us all to understand a little better of what happens when one goes undercover. Um, I suppose the particular case study you've chosen uh, that we've discussed, that's fascinating. A guy moving a truckload of drugs around the state, he's also a prolific stalker of attractive young women. He chats them up at bars, spikes the drinks and rapes them. Uh, So Mm. could you tell us how how did that job, um, how did that come to you? Can you take us through what happens as a UC from the very start?
1: Yeah, sure. That that was um, that was later in my career. I was actually a detective sergeant at uh, the Bureau of Criminal Intelligence, and the BCI in those days um, comprised of a surveillance unit. It comprised of uh, various intelligence desks. So I ran the uh, the Altman motorcycle gang desk. So which meant that my team and I gathered. Both tactical and strategic intelligence on the activities of organised crime groups, outlaw motorcycle gangs. You know, a lot of people think that they're just good blokes who dress up and ride motorbikes. They're they're completely different. Um, very well organised crime gangs. So, as part of that, um, I had a surveillance team, and and I'd um, I'd fallen straight back into the world that I loved, which was long hair and uh, not dressing like a cop, and just absolutely not looking like one. Uh, etc. So even though I wasn't undercover, I was running a covert operation. So the job came to us because the Gold Coast Police had been uh, an informer had come forward to them, who knew this uh, knew this target. And he knew that he was involved in large scale distribution of ecstasy, um, MDMA. Uh, now, this was this was, oh, gee, about 1991, and MDMA had made its mark in Australia in the probably late 80s, um, so MDMA known as ecstasy. And, and it was originally sold in powder form, but then people discovered pill presses, and uh, and so ecstasy tablets were starting to be produced. Now, the informer came forward. He'd known the target for years, um, he didn't really have a problem with the fact that he was selling drugs, but he really had uh, a crisis of conscience when this guy was boasting about how he'd go to bars on the Gold Coast and then, as is now, um, the Gold Coast was full of beautiful young women. He'd go to a bar, he'd chat one up, and, and bear in mind the target at that stage, I was um, I was probably 31 or 32, he would have been 10 years older than I was. And he would chat them up, spike their drinks with a substantial amount of uh, of MDMA. Um, We later found out other additives as well, uh, which included traces of heroin, some of LSD, Um, get them into a a stupor, take them back to their place and sexually assault them. So You know, rape, as you know, doesn't have to be forcibly holding someone down. It could be applying a stupefying drug and having sex without consent. And that's precisely what his MO was, and he boasted about it. And and the informer, for reasons of his own, um, didn't think that that was – that was a wonderful thing for him to be doing. So he came forward to the police. So then the police wanted to have a UC that was um, older, and and I think in those days UCs were still like we were. They were still younger kids, young young men, um, and they wanted someone who could fit into the scene. And uh, and all false modesty aside, I, I was quite well renowned for my undercover work and uh, and and the approach I took to it. So I was approached by all you know, my boss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It was approached by the Gold Coast Police. And essentially, it was, listen, we know Banksy would be perfect for this. Can we have him? So, the Criminal Justice Commission was involved as well because there was some indication um, that there may have been police corruption involved in this. And this was post the Fitzgerald inquiry. So the CJC were, um, they, they still are, uh, they were an external body that was charged with investigating police and government corruption. So we actually utilised some of their surveillance people and their surveillance equipment. So essentially, um I went to the coast. I had a meeting with the informer uh, I had a meeting with the detectives who were running it and and i you know what would normally happen is that the informer would introduce me as a friend of his that he'd known for years, he'd vouch for me, I'd buy drugs from the target and there'd be an arrest and you know on we'd go but um I was very, very concerned about protecting informers. And I, I had that attitude because back when I was a young undercover, informers sometimes were looked after, but often were just thrown to the wolves. So when an operation had finished um, and, it, and it became obvious there was an undercover involved, and in those days they declared our identities, which is, again, is a whole another story. But um, the informers often would be assaulted or worse. Yeah. yeah. So I'd... Yeah. Um, Oh uh, yeah, I, I so I you know when I was a uh, start of that rank and I you know had more much more influence than I did as a young copper, um, I said right we need to protect this guy he's done the right thing, so I sat with him and said right here's what we'll do so we we um, he'd given us a a large brief on the target's activities the type the types of bars he frequented um, you know what his normal routine was and. And let's say it was a Tuesday afternoon. There was a particular bar that he'd go to um, in the coast CBD itself in Surface Paradise. And, uh, and this guy said, look, he's going to be there from about one to, you know, one or two onwards and he'll be there for a few hours. And I said, okay, this is what we do. I'll go in there first and I'll have some lunch and I'll be sitting at a table, you know, looking out the window, checking out the girls as they go by, as you do. And I said, when you come in with him, we'll accidentally run into each other again. I said, so you've known me or you knew me 10 years ago. Um, we met in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And I said, so when things happen, you're quite, you're going to be quite easily able to say, well, look, I knew the guy 10 years ago. I didn't realize he was a cop now. So, so that's the way we approached it rather than have him introduce me as a potential buyer. So we did that. Um, the target turned up with the informer. Then the informer and I accidentally ran into each other, and you know, mate, it's been years. How have you been? Fancy seeing you here. Um, and I met the target that way. So, so what we did was, I, I then I just wanted to have it as a um, an organic social interaction. So rather than rush straight in and say I'm here to buy drugs, um, I let the relationship develop over probably two or three weeks. And and that by that I meant. I mean, I, was, I um, had a place at the Gold Coast. And so knowing this guy's eye for, for attractive women, I, um, I had a policewoman assigned to me who was quite attractive who I then accidentally ran into the target at a particular nightclub he frequented on a Friday night with this policewoman on my arm. And and again, just went, hey, you know, geez, I met you at a bar a week ago. How are you? <laughs> and, uh, and then we developed this, this whole friendship. And the fact that I had an attractive woman with me got his attention even more so. So then, you know, next time I met him, I started a conversation just generally around drugs, you know, how good sex was with the right drugs. And of course, he leapt at that um, like a marlin on a, on a big hook and, uh, and suddenly said, hey, you know, I can help you out, mate. So then I started, I, I started buying small amounts of ecstasy from him, which then increased
2: when you were buying the drugs, Keith, from him, was that at the nightclub or like, did you go to his house or where did that exchange take place?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, initially at the nightclub. So, you know, the old uh, walk into, the, into the, the gents together, do the deal in there and then come back out. Um, and then I actually had a uh, a very nice unit on the Gold Coast that was wired for sound, or in other words, listening devices were put all through it. And I started meeting him there when we were doing bigger okay. deals. Yep. And during those conversations, I got out of him the fact that um, he was actually uh, applying, stupefying drugs to girls' drinks and sexually assaulting them.
2: How did that conversation come about?
1: So as, as I was saying before, you as an undercover, you need to portray a person that you are not, yeah? So I just started a conversation about, about um, younger women and sexual activity and, you know, how good it was to um, maybe, you know, put a little powder in a drink when you had them back to your place to relax them. And again, because of his personality, he wanted to be bigger and better than everybody else. So then he had to um trump my story with his own. Yeah? Yeah. So that's when he started to talk about what he got up to. And so of course I pretended to be really interested in that and go, mate, that sounds great. How do I get onto that? Where do you go? How do you do it? Who do you see? You know? Um and and that and that then led into a bigger investigation. And the uh detectives assigned to the task force were actually able to locate, um, I think from memory, two women that he'd sexually assaulted and persuaded them to make complaints. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. from from just buying some ecstasy tablets, it turned into a larger, very satisfying investigation when he was arrested. But on the way through, um, he sold me a pill press. Um, He arranged for um, the purchase of couple of thousand tablets you know so it really turned into that bigger job but i was about to make the point that one of the benefits of having lived this life is that i'm able to have um very forthright and honest conversations about drug use with uh my daughters yeah so when when they were in that you know know, kids get into that sort of um teenage years and they think they know everything about the world (laughs) and uh and from that time, I was able to sit down when they were in that age and just talk openly about drugs and say, "I need you to understand what it's like out there." The first batch of ecstasy, alleged ecstasy, I bought from this guy. Um, we had them tested in the labs in Brisbane, and there and there was there was uh, MDMA, so ecstasy, in the tablets, but they also contained almost as much uh, LSD oh, and God. some speed, so methamphetamine. Yeah. so yeah toxic well it was a pretty big mix yeah and um i fortunately got the results back before i met him again so because i'd said to him i was i was buying it for my own personal use so when i met him he said hey how was it and i said i dragged i got him out so we have got to talk outside and i actually gave it to him because i said i don't want to buy these fucking things to go on a trip i want to buy them for ecstasy and you you blah 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 so that actually gave me credibility because I led him to believe that I had used them yeah. and that I hadn't liked them. So then he got me onto another batch, you know. Um, but it's, it's being undercover, as, as I keep saying, is you just need to, to be able to have a conversation with someone and, and become the character that you're portraying, which can be challenging in, in a job like that. Because oh all I wanted to do was grab him by the throat.
2: Well, I would have grabbed him somewhere else. But... <laughs> Could you tell us about the actual arrest of him?
1: yeah i um I wasn't there for that so so what used to happen was as a younger undercover, I'd set up a buy bus, so I'd set up a uh, um, a large amount of drugs to be bought. Um, we meet in a public place. So, this is the only part of undercover that is sort of like the movies. Yep. So, you generally meet in a public place with, you know, the offender or the target might have 20 pounds of dope. And, and in those days, you'd have the required amount of cash uh, with a, a listening device in the car or wearing a wire. Use the code word, in would come everybody and arrest him. In this case, um, I was acutely aware that. The informer, I'd actually eased right out of the, um, the scenario before we'd really progressed further down the track. But I also, I I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to have, excuse me, a big buy bust to you know almost culminate it. I I thought it would be better if he was arrested for some other offences, and then they brought the drug dealing into the into the interview after that. So that's what happened. He was arrested for, I think he was arrested for possession. Um, and then during the interview, the whole thing about drug dealing came out. And during uh, that, of course, he denied it. Um, and then I was more than happy to have my cover blown because it was just one of those jobs I wasn't going to do again. And uh, and they brought me into the interview, interview room and I said, hello, and I won't use his real name. And I said, uh, I said guess what? guess who you've been selling to? And I actually literally got my warrant card and my um my my badge out of my pocket and said, "Yep, I'm a cop." And oh. it still delights me to think about the look on his face.
2: Oh yeah. And
1: suddenly confess to everything. Yeah. So doesn't
2: get yeah. much better yeah. so than that, that does makes, it?
1: <laughs> that's exactly right, <laughs> and uh, and um and you. That's where it's all worth it. That's when all of those hours of sitting and listening to this bastard talk about, you know, what he liked to do and how much money he was making and how big a man he was and all of that becomes worth it for that, that 30 seconds.
2: Oh, yeah. Did he admit um, to the um, sexual assault of the women?
1: Um, I th- from memory, he was charged with two of them and uh, and he was uh, he was sentenced to six years Um or he might have been sentenced to eight with a bottom of six, but he certainly did six years, which isn't much in my view for uh, for sexual assault, but as you know, that's the way the justice system works but um, but he would have done those six years particularly hard because uh, he was just in a general population jail
2: so Keith, what would you say that's the best part of a UC is that that moment where you've um uh, you tell them that you're a cop and the blood drains from their face and they realize they've been sort of tricked is that the best part of it
1: yeah for me it was um i, I don't know how undercover works these days and uh and i don't need to know i'm bloody curious but i don't need to know i'm, I'm well out of the job now um, i think there are a lot of UC jobs where people's identity isn't disclosed, so they don't have that satisfaction. But, hey, for me, every single time a job closed and I had the ability to look someone in the eye and uh, and almost say, gotcha, or fooled you. Oh, um, yeah. You know, that, that for me was great.
2: Is there another one that um, sticks out in your mind, um, another incident where you were able, where you felt that good? Is there another example you can give us of a um, a UC job?
1: Um, look, I think every UC, every drug job I did, Narelle, um, I felt really good with. Um, there, there were there were instances that were really challenging for me, um, but particularly heroin dealers. You know those those who those who delighted in making money and didn't care about the consequences, as opposed to you know some some users that. That were dealing because they had to. Um, you know, I certainly bought, I, I certainly scored heroin from uh, a variety of those to work my way up the chain. Um, always had nothing but you know sorrow for them. Um, but certainly those that, that, who were the actual people, or the real people that I was portraying. So what I mean by that is, as uh, my portrayal of a heroin dealer was that I was in it for the money and I didn't care about anything else. So when you actually did business with people who were doing that for real. They were the ones that I really enjoyed um, seeing the colour drain from their faces because they knew they were going away. Um, and in Queensland, for all its faults and foibles in those days, the majority of um, trafficking uh, offenders or offenders who were charged with trafficking heroin did jail time. Um, unlike these days, I you know I sound like an old dinosaur, but. Uh, <laughs> But I, I worry about the fact that the justice system doesn't jail people for some pretty serious offences like they should. You know, there doesn't seem to be any consequence to me. But, um, but no, they they were yeah they they were predominantly uh, as I say my undercover stuff was around drugs. I um I have had some colleagues who have masqueraded as hitmen. Um, one in particular. The, oh, gee, I have to be trying to recall the details of it, but essentially he was hired, if you were, um, to put an explosive device on a, um, on a cruise ship that um, the offender had a financial interest in the cruise ship. And when I say a cruise ship, it wasn't a cruise line. It was just um, a ship, a small ship that was taking tourists off the coast of Cairns out past the Great Barrier Reef. Um, this guy was in financial trouble, and uh, and he had hired or wanted a hitman. My mate was introduced to him, and uh, and he wanted uh, Peter to put a an explosive device on this to explode beyond the range of helicopter rescue. God. So he was quite happy to have around one hundred and fifty people drown at sea, um, so that he could claim the whole thing on insurance. Just
2: for insurance. And, uh,
1: and my mate Peter, who's not not the stock yeah, just for insurance. Yeah, completely ruthless. Oh. So this Peter wasn't the first Pete I've mentioned in my undercover, my young undercover, but this was Peter who was an older guy um, and, uh, and he did the job and he got a lot of satisfaction out of that because if the informer hadn't come forward, there would have been at least 150 people who died at sea, you know. So they're the sorts of jobs that, that bring great satisfaction. Because there are a lot of people out there with absolutely no conscience.
2: Well, and there's a perfect example of one that's prepared to kill 150 at least, you know, around 150 people, uh, holidaying, partying, you know, like we all do. We love uh, that sort of stuff, just minding their own business and all because of money, all insurance.
1: All because of money. Oh, you shake
2: your head in disbelief, don't you? Um we talked about a job uh, that you did with a fourteen-year-old. Could we touch on that story a bit, Keith?
1: Yeah, I've written about it in the book, and and when I wrote about it, it was quite the whole book. Actually, was quite cathartic for me. Um, this particular job, yeah, it was my first job out of Brisbane. Um, I was living on the Gold Coast. I uh, I was buying a lot of heroin, um, working my way up the chain, and so on, and. Initially, um, I was introduced to this kid at a party when I, I think, gee, it would have been my first or second day when I started my undercover operation down there. And I went to this party. I was introduced to him. And I thought, you know, he had this confidence. He was he was a young surfy dude, you know, the classic blonde hair and, you know, six pack and whatever. And I thought he was maybe 18 or 19. and And I firmly believed that all the way through the operation. And I found out later he was 14. Um, he was, he was in a circle of, um, attractive women who were users and dealers. And, and again, just to digress slightly, you know, people have this view of heroin users as emaciated junkies. Um, I met quite a lot of, of functioning heroin addicts. They just used it because I liked it. Um, and, and this was the circle that we were in and, and that's the circle I was able to leverage from to get to, to major dealers. And, uh, anyway i was out one night with a couple of these women scoring some some heroin came back to their place and shane um was there with his girlfriend and he'd uh he had a pretty volatile relationship with his father who used to smack him around a bit and um and i related to that because that was you know my background and and we were sitting there and in a nutshell uh he that had happened and one of them said oh one one of them shot up in front of us and again you Know to stand to sit there and watch someone inject heroin is pretty confronting, mm. In particularly when oh, you're. I think yeah. I was 22 years old, yeah. Um, and uh, and I was portraying a heroin dealer, so you know I had to outwardly show no emotion and no concern, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, then she offered to uh, offered to shoot him up, and and I sat there. I remember sitting there thinking, Jesus, don't do this, mate, don't do this, oh. but I was powerless to intervene because to intervene would have blown my cover completely. You yeah. know, why would a heroin dealer care if someone were using yeah, this product? you're right. Um, yep. Not that it was my product, but, mm. you know, using the product. And so I sat there and watched her um, apply the tourniquet mix up the smack um, and then shoot him up. And, uh, and I, I left shortly after that. The operation went on for another, gee, couple of months, I think. Um, everyone was arrested, et cetera, um, and... That's when it turned out that he was only fourteen years old, oh. and I kept track of him when I went back to normal policing. And he died of a heroin overdose when he was eighteen. Um,
2: oh, Keith, that is just that, is just that is just tragic. That is just it's that heartbreaking. Is, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is.
1: I'm, I'm sitting here at home, Narelle, sort of looking out my window and just, you know, thinking how fortunate I am in life. And oh, yeah. Yeah. and I just I, I look back and and for years and this. Obviously, it contributed a part of my PTSD, I'm sure. Yeah. But for years, I used to think, if only I'd stopped it. If only yeah, I'd stopped I'm it. I'm sure. Um, yep. You know. So, yeah, it's every time I tell the story, and, and I've told it to my counsellor, I've told yeah. it to various people, it, it makes it a little bit easier. So, yeah, thank you. I, I don't have a problem talking about it. In fact, it's good for me to do it.
2: Um, God, I, it could... That could, um, that could turn me to tears. It's, that is just so sad. Mm. Um, did you ever have to yeah. inject, Keith? Um, or How did you avoid be, uh, injecting in sit, some situations? Mm.
1: No, I, um, I absolutely started every conversation when I was buying heroin with the fact that I'm in it for the money, I don't use it. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and there were a couple of instances where people almost insisted I do and I'd then turn on the aggression. You know, and and without the expletives, it would simply be, I've told you and once. I'm not going to tell you again. If I tell you again, I'm going to have to sort you out. You know, um, yeah. so you can read between the lines. Yeah, and, uh, and and all you need to do is is really, from a business perspective, put it out there. Um, I had uh, I had a situation one night where I did two lines of speed at the point of a shotgun. That was one of those times where I thought discretion is a better part of valor. <laughs> Um, oh and that was God. pretty early on in my undercover life. You know, I still really didn't know what I was doing, and uh, and I'd set up a um, a deal. Met this guy at a pub as you do. Went around to his place that night, and uh, and in a nutshell, he was speeding off his nut when I opened when he opened the door. We made the deal. I gave him the money. He gave me the speed, and then he insisted I stay and party with him. Um, and I went back to the I don't use mate and uh And he produced a double barreled sawn- off shotgun and pointed at me, and essentially said, "If you don't do a line with me, I'm going to blow your guts out." I remember that quite vividly God. and uh, and that's where I looked at him and thought, Jesus. Hmm. so uh, my witty comeback was, "Okay, where's the straw <laughs> so uh <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and I did two lines of speed with him, and you know, like bloody. Four months before this, or maybe three months before this, I'd never had a drink in my life. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke cigarettes. I'd never touched drugs, and uh, and here I was doing two lines of speed off some filthy table in a little squat in Brisbane. Yeah. And and I remember driving home thinking, oh man, what's this going to do to me? And uh, and yeah, I, I I was up and speeding for pff, five or six hours. I think must have been pretty good gear. Um, and and in those days, television stopped broadcasting at midnight. <laughs> and this, I think I, I did these lines with him about 9 o'clock at night or something, or 7 o'clock, who knows. And uh, so there's absolutely nothing to do. And I was, yes. I was in my little unit and I wasn't game to go outside because I didn't know what the drugs would do. You know, I might have yes. seen 15-foot bloody, you know, purple monsters. Yes. And so I stayed inside my unit speeding mm. with nothing to watch and yeah. nothing to do. That oh, was god. uh that was an interesting trip, that one.
2: Hey, hey Keith, have you ever had a, a have you ever had a dealer um that or are there dealers that don't use?
1: Oh yeah. Oh god yeah. Yeah, many of them. Um they they are they're absolutely making a lot of money and uh and in fact if we just let me get the years right, I think it would have been mid to late 80s, every outlaw motorcycle gang um, issued or they they had uh, added to their charter because these people have written charters for these clubs. They're very well organised. And the charter was anybody who uses heroin will be bashed, they'll have their bike confiscated and they'll be thrown out of the club because you can't trust a junkie. So, um, and I think even the, the better, when I say better, the um, – Better organised and, and most and more notable OMGs um, won't even won't deal heroin because of that. So there were uh, so so the vacuum created by you know clubs not dealing in heroin was quickly filled by people who saw the opportunity to make a lot of money um, out of heroin, and they absolutely didn't use didn't touch it, and they were the ones I preferred to deal with, you know, for two reasons. One is they were the real; they were the targets I loved having pinched. But also, it was so easy just to sit down and have a business discussion and not have to sit there and watch the football and you know yeah. get to know people. It was yeah. business as business. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed dealing with them.
2: Oh, amazing, Keith! Well, Keith, uh, I could listen to you twenty-four-seven. Um, but would no, you would you come back uh, and tell us some more? Um, about your probably I think the next one we could do is on the more personal side of um, what Mm. your UC, the repercussions of your UC life and um, a bit about your PTSD because you're obviously quite um, you've got a, what would you call it, your PTSD group that has grown from, you know, nothing to thousands and I think that would be a fascinating story in itself, so would you come back and do another podcast for me? <laughs> for
1: I'd uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to, Norrell. I'd love to. You and I share a passion about um, creating an authentic conversation around PTSD, and and mine developed not just from my UC, but from my tactical work and 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 some horrible things I was involved in and loss and, and so on. There, um, I would love to. I I think for me, if and you may well be the same. Um, if we had had someone tell us in those days that we weren't the only ones feeling and thinking this way, we would have recovered much more quickly. Absolutely. Um, and mm. and I think it's you know we have an opportunity to actually get the message out there that if anybody um, who's in the job or out of the job thinks that they're they're going through this by themselves, that they're not. You know, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge advocate for that conversation.
2: Well, as you said, Keith, I feel uh, very passionate about that myself. So um, uh, I'll look forward to our next chat. But um, thank you so much for today, Keith.
1: Thanks, Norella. I really appreciate the opportunity.